History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. Hello, my name is Meredith. And my name is Dustin. And we're the host of... The Alexander Standard. <clears throat> That's better. Inspired by Rex Factor Podcast, we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perdiccas to Cleopatra the Seventh. After Alexander the Great died, really hit the fan. Seriously, the Hellenistic world was a crazy place. And we've got some crazy stories to tell you. So please come check out our show, The Alexander Standard. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 83, Routine Maintenance. Last time, we mostly wrapped up the War of the Brothers, or at least the first phase of that war. I'll debate that a bit in a couple of weeks. Regardless, the treasonous have been punished or recuperated, the loyal have been rewarded, Herosotus has reaped terrible vengeance, and the Greek mercenary force was left confused and frightened as their commanders were slaughtered, their generals arrested, and their friends betrayed them. But Clearchus and the other Greek commanders were last seen in chains headed for Babylon, and that's where we pick up today. This is really the start of Phase 3 of Artaxerxes' reign, he proved himself generous and accommodating immediately after taking power. He was stern and wrathful, but not hateful in his victory over Cyrus. Now, he had to determine what it meant to be the unchallenged king of the world, with no real consequences if he was a bit unpopular. But like I said, we pick up the story of Clearchus the senior general of Cyrus the Younger's mercenaries in Babylon. Clearchus and his comrades were a sacrifice, sold out to Artaxerxes by their former Persian comrades-in-arms under Ariaios. The Persians were spared from exile in exchange for Greek lives. To add insult to injury, the Greeks were betrayed by one of their own, Menon of Thessaly, who had formed an intimate, if not romantic, relationship with the aforementioned Ariaios. Menon was allowed to live in the entourage of his lover, while the others were taken to prison, awaiting execution. 
Clearchus became a pawn in the endless competition for royal influence between the queen mother, Parasatis, and her daughter-in-law, Statera. As soon as she heard about the plot to capture the Greek generals, Parasatis began agitating to have Clearchus spared as a personal favor. Clearchus was Cyrus's good personal friend, and Parasatis must have seen him as a link to Cyrus himself that could be saved. When the Greeks arrived in Babylon, paraded through the streets in chains, people came out to crowd around and get a look at the Greek general who had brought Cyrus so close to victory. Once imprisoned, Clearchus received a messenger from Parasatis. This was none other than Theseus, our primary source who was serving Parasatis and occasionally Artaxerxes as their personal doctor. Theseus also served as a frequent liaison to the Greeks in and around the court, including these high-profile prisoners. As a prominent translator, it wasn't at all suspicious for Theseus to appear in the prison and speak with Clearchus in a language that his jailers could not understand. He asked if Clearchus needed anything because the queen mother would provide it. Clearchus's request was simple. He wanted a comb. This was the perfect request. If Theseus came back with the comb and there were no issues, Clearchus could start to trust the physician. But the comb itself was innocuous enough not to create suspicion. It was also of immense personal importance to Clearchus as a Spartan. The Spartans, for all their warrior reputation, took great pride in their physical appearance, especially in battle. Keeping one's hair combed was a semi-spiritual tradition for Spartan citizens. The comb came, and Theseus began doing small favors for the imprisoned general on behalf of Parasatis, presumably whispering reassurances that the queen mother was working toward his release. As a sign of his thanks for this service, Clearchus gave Theseus his signet ring. At one point, Clearchus informed Theseus that the other Greek commanders in their shared cell had started stealing his food. Maybe they got angry with Clearchus for failing as a general, or maybe because he was the only one with any hope of a pardon. Either way, Theseus just ordered extra rations to be provided directly to Clearchus, and the problems in the cell calmed down. Parasatis also started sending an additional slab of bacon to Clearchus in addition to his rations, an attempt to make him more comfortable and keep him healthy while in jail. One day, when Theseus delivered this snack, Clearchus begged him to slip a knife into the next round of meat. Clearchus had given up on liberation, and as the planned date of execution drew near, he wanted to go out on his own terms. But Theseus adamantly refused. The queen mother wanted to save Clearchus's life. Artaxerxes actually gave in to his mother on this one, and planned to release Clearchus after his comrades were executed. But Statira intervened on the other side. She convinced Artaxerxes that allowing Clearchus to live would be too much clemency or make him look weak because Artaxerxes reversed course. Ultimately, Clearchus was indeed executed. It's also possible that Theseus and Parasatis were exaggerating a bit, and she just told the physician that she was close to accomplishing her goal, while Artaxerxes always intended to go through with it. Either way, Clearchus and the others were killed, officially the final casualties of Cyrus's rebellion. The method is not recorded, but their corpses were displayed at Babylon shortly before the court packed up and went home to Parsa for the winter. According to Theseus, a freak sandstorm blew up and buried Clearchus's body, creating a makeshift grave where olive trees miraculously sprouted forming a grove that Parasatis provided funds to maintain. In all likelihood, she simply had the grove planted in secret, 
and maintained the garden as a subtle memorial to her lost son. And from there, we get into the empire itself. The trip to Persepolis that September would have taken the court on a tour of building projects, where laborers and craftsmen were hard at work on several new structures for the royal family. There aren't highly detailed sources for it, but a new royal palace was built in Babylon. Whether this was actually refurbishing one of the two that were already in place, built by Nebuchadnezzar and Darius the Great, or a third royal residence isn't clear. This latest project was commissioned by Artaxerxes II, and it seems plausible that the order was given in 401 either as a celebration for the Battle of Canoxa, or simply because he was forced to spend several extra months in the city and decided he needed something newer. The next royal city after Babylon was Susa. The Grand Palace of Darius the Great had burned down about 40 years earlier under Artaxerxes I. The residential section had already been rebuilt by Darius II, but the Apadana was just beginning to rise again under the new Artaxerxes. It's actually thanks to Artaxerxes II's Apadana that we have such a clear chronology for the fire and subsequent rebuilding process. There is an inscription on some of the column bases where Artaxerxes takes credit for the building and lays out that timeline, with each stage listed with whichever king was ruling. He also decided that a new palace was needed in Susa as well. As palaces go, it's pretty simple, basically a recreation of Artaxerxes I's palace at Persepolis. Small, basically a square, with tall columns throughout and an ornate shallow staircase on two sides. But there is a twist. The new palace was built outside the defensive walls. In fact, it was built entirely on the opposite side of the Karun River, before said river was diverted out of the city. It's a bit of an odd location, given that there were no buildings in most of the encircled area, just the wide open space that seems to have housed the tents of the traveling court. And once again, we know that this was Artaxerxes II's primarily through inscriptions on the column bases. In the usual academic format, this is called inscription A2SD, written on several columns in both Akkadian and Elamite, but apparently not Old Persian. It reads, I am Artaxerxes, the great king, the king of kings, king of all nations, King of this world, the son of King Darius the Achaemenid. King Artaxerxes says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, I built this palace, which I have built in my lifetime as a paradise. May Ahura Mazda, Anahita, and Mithra protect me and my building against all evil. Despite having almost half a dozen of them, only one Artaxerxes was the son of Darius. So this is Artaxerxes II. Please save all religious questions for a future episode, but this inscription also explains the large architectural footprint immediately next to the palace. An open space almost as large as the new palace itself was surrounded by low walls and bisected by a fifth wall north to south. The ground was level and irrigated, to become a paradise garden for Artaxerxes' personal enjoyment. Despite being built far away, the new palace was not cut off from the much larger original palace inside the city walls. All of the administrative offices, other royal apartments, and public audience halls were still over there, so a huge ramp, including a bridge over the Karun, was built connecting Artaxerxes' new front door to a back entrance on the main palace complex. Unlike almost any other Achaemenid administrative building, this structure actually remained in use all the way to the early Islamic period, and the regular upkeep associated with that may be the reason there is better preserved paint pigments on the walls than other Achaemenid sites. 
The walls were red and blue, while the columns themselves were all blue aside from the ornate capitals shaped like bowls in the typical Achaemenid style. One wall was decorated with a large fresco, though any indication of the image itself When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Self has long been worn away. From Susa, they finally would have progressed to Persepolis. There was not much work left to be done here. By all indications, Artaxerxes I and Darius II considered the palaces at Persepolis more or less finished. There was barely any room left to expand on the terrace anyway. But there was a problem in the area. Naqsha Rostam was filling up. There is one large section of mountainside that seems like it is conspicuously missing an Achaemenid tomb. That's the only spot left on the mountain that could have held one, though, so eventually this problem was going to come up either way. The apparent blank space was eventually filled in by a large Sassanid-era relief, but underneath of that, there may be an explanation for why Artaxerxes II couldn't add a fifth tomb. A much earlier Elamite relief marks the mountain as one of the original people of southern Iran's outdoor sanctuaries. Given that Elamite religion was still going strong, the Achaemenids may have just respected that section of the mountain. But Artaxerxes was approaching 50 and would need to start work on a monumental tomb somewhere. These things could take decades, and the king was already relatively old. People didn't really die at 30, like we like to joke, but anything past 70 was fairly rare. Rather than seek out some new sacred place or disturb the serenity of Pasargadae, Artaxerxes had workers up on the mountain overlooking the Persepolis Terrace, carving out a new tomb right above the lower city and the palaces of his nobles. To facilitate his eventual funeral, a series of walkways were also constructed on the hill above the terrace, connecting the eastern side of the palace complex to the heights above. Later, 
Toward the end of Artaxerxes II's reign, a series of new structures started taking shape on the terrace itself, filling in the small area north of the Hall of 100 Columns with new storerooms, a sanctuary of some sort, and a thin wall to create a functional procession route from the Gate of All Nations to the Hall and up to his tomb. While we're talking tombs, I want to do some open speculation. There's no strong evidence, and I haven't seen any published scholars suggest this. But to be fair, even in a Caymanid scholarship, we're going into a pretty obscure topic here. Hundreds of miles northwest of Persepolis, near modern Silamani in Iraqi Kurdistan, there is another tomb. It is known by its local name, Ashkat Ikizkapan, which comes from a local legend about a princess and a peasant boy, and translates literally as the Cave of the Rapist, to give you a sense of that story. And, for better or worse, the name that we usually identify it with is Kizkapan, which is the second half of that phrase. The tomb is sometimes identified as the tomb of the Median king Syaxeres, but this identification comes from Ernst Hertzfeld, an early 20th century scholar who made a ton of wild bad guesses about ancient sites. A. We're not in media. And B. All indications say it's an Achaemenid burial. But whose? It is shaped like the cruciform royal tombs at Naqsha Rostam, but with only one section. It's carved into a mountain with a relief and faux columns around the entrance to the tomb, with images of worshippers surrounded by religious imagery. But the imagery is very different from Naqsha Rostam, and there is no inscription identifying the occupant. Patreon subscribers might remember that I had a much larger discussion about Kizkapan in my bonus episode on many less well-known Achaemenid tombs. I'll post a link and some pictures in the episode description, and I recommend you check them out for some more information. But one thing I hadn't considered in that episode is that this tomb could be highly relevant at this point in the narrative. I think there's a decent chance that this was Cyrus the Younger's tomb, meaning it was probably also starting construction in 401 BCE. Points in my favor, some of the religious imagery may be associated with Mithra and Anahita, Yazadas who became very prominent at this time. The columns are Ionic columns, which have never been seen before in the Persian heartland, but Cyrus was a friend of the Ionian Greeks. Xenophon mentions Parasadus owning estates in this region, so she would have had some free reign to construct a tomb, so long as it didn't offend Artaxerxes himself. Royal imagery is carefully applied. The usual motif of the Faravahar is present, but rather than presenting a ring representing divine right to rule, it is holding a bar psalm used in religious ceremonies. There are two worshippers at the fire altar, similar to how the great kings are presented on their tombs, bows resting on their feet and one hand raised in reverence toward the flames. However, neither is represented in the usual royal robe, Instead, they're wearing the typical riding clothes and caps preferred by most of the nobles in the later Achaemenid period. A king-like figure seated on a crescent moon disc floats above them where the Faravahar appears on royal tombs. And this figure is holding the ring of kingship. This motif and the Barsam Faravahar occasionally appear on the cylinder seals used by nobles in the imperial administration. Points against me, there is literally no textual information to back this up, 
and every item on that list is open to a dozen other interpretations. After Persepolis, Artaxerxes' court would have traveled back through Susa and Babylon in the spring, and then up to Ecbatana to spend the heat of summer in the cool mountain air. After generations of functional obscurity, Artaxerxes II's reign also shed some light on the Median capital. It's not much, but a few inscriptions found in modern Hamadan, and a reference from Theseus, tell us that Artaxerxes built another Apadana at the northern capital. It's not clear if this was the first audience hall and the Median city was just old-fashioned, or if this was an expansion of some existing structure. But once again, the inscriptions contain some interesting details. Purely in terms of aesthetics, the inscribed column bases here reveal that the Apadana in Ekbadana probably looked different than its counterpart further south. The column bases were carved from dark black diorite, rather than the pale limestone and marble used in Persepolis and Susa. While those lighter colors were painted with shades of blue, red, and green in various palaces, these diorite bases would have been left in their natural state and polished. By extension, we can probably imagine that Ekbatana had a slightly different color palette than the southern cities. There's also an odd difference in the language on these diorite bases. Some have an inscription in Akkadian and Elamite that used all of the usual royal titles, with the full genealogy back to Darius the Great, son of Histaspes, the Achaemenid. However, the old Persian inscriptions at Ekbatana were abbreviated and simply refer to the king as Artaxerxes, the great king, son of Darius the Achaemenid. Who knows why the other languages got more attention on Artaxerxes' columns, both in Ecbatana and Susa, but it is a noticeable trend. This new Apadana may have been decorated with a series of old Persian inscriptions pressed into solid gold plaques as well. To date, golden tablets in Old Persian have been found in Ecbatana, attributed to Artaxerxes II, Darius II, Darius the Great, Darius the Great's grandfather Arsimes, and Arsimes' father Ariaramnes. This leaves some questions. Modern scholars are pretty sure that Old Persian writing was invented under Darius the Great. So Ariaramnes and Arsimes couldn't have had these inscriptions in their names. The solution to that discrepancy is that they simply didn't come from Ariaramnes and Arsimes. These inscriptions are labeled ASH and AMH respectively, and they're basically identical, just with the additional level of genealogy for Arsimes. AMH reads, Ariaramnes, the great king, king of kings, king in Persia, Son of King Taspes, grandson of Achaemenes. King Ariaramnes says, This country Persia, which I hold, which is possessed of good horses, of good men, the great god Ahura Mazda bestowed it upon me. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, I am king in this country. King Ariaramnes says, May Ahura Mazda bear me aid. But here's the thing. Neither Arsimes nor Ariaramnes were the great king, king of kings, or king in Persia. King of kings was only adopted by Cyrus the Great after he started expanding. And Arsimes was still alive when the Babylonian chronicles identified Cyrus as the king of Persia. Darius the Great recast all of his ancestors as kings, but we know that Cyrus's ancestors were the ones using these titles historically. On top of that, even if they were authentic inscriptions, they wouldn't have been installed in Ecbatana, the capital of the Medes, decades before the kings of Persia controlled the city. 
Most of the text is simply recycled from some inscriptions of Darius the Great at Susa, but there are odd grammatical differences. Sometimes these are described as grammatical errors, but that is not necessarily the case. It's true that these weird gold tablets don't use perfect Old Persian grammar as seen at, say, Behistun. But the heirs are very much in line with the inscriptions of Artaxerxes II. It's not so much that they are incorrect, but a sign that the Persian language was changing, because they are also grammatical shifts that would fully develop in Middle Persian a few centuries later. Of course, it's always possible that the Arsamese and Arya Romney's texts are modern forgeries. Hamadan was a hub of the illicit and fake antiquities trade in the early 20th century. But given their similarities to authentic texts from the later Achaemenids, it seems much more likely that they are ancient forgeries, retroactively portraying the early members of the Achaemenid line as kings like their descendants. Another set of nearly identical gold tablets are attributed to Darius II and Artaxerxes II, A2HC and D2HA. Once again, the only difference is in the genealogy of each generation. A2HC reads, A great god is Ahura Mazda, the greatest of all gods, who created this earth, who created yonder sky, who created mankind, who created happiness for mankind, who made Artaxerxes king, one king for many, one ruler for all. Artaxerxes the great king, the king of kings, the king of all nations, the king of this world, says I am the son of King Darius, Darius the son of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes the son of King Xerxes, Xerxes the son of King Darius, Darius the son of a man named Histaspes the Achaemenid. King Artaxerxes says, I am the king of the earth, great and wide. Ahura Mazda gave me the kingdom, may Ahura Mazda protect me, the kingdom he gave to me, and my royal house. This one is notable in Artaxerxes' reign for especially singling out Ahura Mazda. Most of his other inscriptions bring up Mithra and Anahita, but this one sticks to the old tradition of Ahura Mazda alone. Finally, there's inscription DH from Darius the Great. This one is the hardest to tie into the rest of these tablets, because it was also inscribed on silver and is very similar to a set of tablets buried in the Apadana foundations at Persepolis. However, if Artaxerxes was rebuilding a structure from that era in Ecbatana, he may have encountered these foundation tablets and moved them or copied them. D.H. reads, Darius the great king, king of kings, king of countries, son of Histaspes and Achaemenid. King Darius says, This is the kingdom which I hold, from the Sakai who are beyond Sogdia to Nubia, and from India to Lydia. This is what Ahura Mazda, the greatest of gods, bestowed upon me. May Ahura Mazda protect me and my royal house. So there's definitely a pattern there. Praise Ahura Mazda, I am an Achaemenid with all the titles, I rule a big kingdom with lots of people. Given that these tablets are made of solid gold, it wouldn't be that strange if more existed in antiquity and had been looted over the years. Given the grammatical structure and the fact that we know Artaxerxes built an Apadana in Ecbatana, it seems that these tablets may have been part of a set created in the early 4th century to commemorate the whole dynasty. They are also great examples of a sort of old Persian renaissance that occurred under Artaxerxes II. Artaxerxes I and Darius II didn't leave a lot of inscriptions behind. 
This may just be because they dealt with fewer building projects than their predecessors. By the mid-5th century, maintenance was more important than building new things. But under Artaxerxes II, maintenance started to include building new things, and a new wave of royal inscriptions gives us a check-in with minor changes to the Persian language and royal ideology after a century of minimal information. Needless to say, we will be talking about some of these inscriptions again. But as the years passed after Cyrus's rebellion, and the court resumed its normal routine, there was still one major source of friction in Artaxerxes' life. His mother and his wife absolutely hated one another. They mocked each other at court. They accused the other of crimes to Artaxerxes. They refused to interact in official ceremonies. There was even violence as they took to assassinating and poisoning members of the other's household staff and personal property managers. The execution of Clearchus was just one thing in a pile of perceived slights that had been growing ever since Tatyra's brother killed Parisatus's eldest daughter. See episode 70. After a few years of this, things seemed to be calming down. Artaxerxes eventually told them that they needed to work something out or be banned from all court ceremonies. So the two women started having regular dinners together, but they were so distrustful that they would only ever eat food that was sampled by a poison tester, prepared and served by the exact same staff of servants. Neither was willing to risk eating anything if the other wasn't also willing to partake. According to Theseus, Parasadus worked out a plan to remove Statera once and for all, despite all of their shared precautions. At one of these dinners, a particular species of Indian pigeon was being served as a delicacy, and Parasadus had one of her eunuchs coat one side of the knife with a particularly deadly poison. The bird was cut down the middle, and the poisoned side was given to Statera, while Parasadus got the clean side. Of course, cross-contamination was still a risk, but only trace amounts of the poison would make it to Parasadus's food, and she knew exactly which antitoxins she would need to combat symptoms. Statyra was not so lucky. She rapidly succumbed to the effects of the toxin and died. There was no doubt in anyone's mind what had happened, and Artaxerxes exploded into the most violent and vindictive retaliation we see in his entire reign. Parasadus's entire household staff was arrested, tortured for answers, and executed. Through these torture sessions, Artaxerxes discovered that one of Parasadus's handmaids, named Gigas, had procured the poison itself. Theseus, who would have been present for the whole ordeal, claims that this was a lie and that Gigas knew about the plot but was not personally involved, suggesting that the servants may have tried to pin the blame on her as a scapegoat. It should be noted that, writing decades later, far away from the Persian court, Theseus had been Parasadus's personal medical professional, and may have known a little thing or two about what poisons were being served that night. But in the moment, Artaxerxes didn't care. Gigas was one of Parasadus's friends. She's often described as a maidservant in translation, but it should be noted that personal attendants of the royal family were often nobles themselves. Parasadus refused to let the young woman go back to her own house for days in an effort to protect her and negotiate with Artaxerxes. But Gigas begged to go home. When the handmaid tried to sneak out at night, Artaxerxes' men ambushed her. Gigas was placed on a trial before a council of Persian nobles befitting her social status and found not guilty 
which supports Tcs's claim that she was only loosely connected to the assassins. Artaxerxes overrode the verdict and had her head crushed between two rocks, supposedly a traditional punishment for court poisoners who were caught in the act. Gigas's death was ultimately intended as a punishment for Parasadis. Artaxerxes couldn't publicly execute his own mother, so he punished everyone around her and then exiled Parasadis from court. He told her to go to Babylon, a place the king only had bad memories of at this point anyway. She could live out her days in the city, but the royal court would not return to the new palace there until she died. So Parasadis packed up her things and left while her son went into mourning. This may be one of the reasons that Theseus's narrative gets less centered on the Persian court after this point, for events where Parasadis was not personally involved. Personal strife was only compounded by political problems. Most of the empire was surprisingly quiet through Artaxerxes' early reign, despite the potential for upheavals that the War of the Brothers presented. But at the dawn of the 4th century BC, in 399, trouble was brewing in multiple parts of the Western Empire. There were actually a number of very important things happening in the tiny sub-province of Judea, but they are important enough to get their own episode in a month or two. Far from the great king's personal purview, an interesting series of events was playing out in the satrapy of Phrygia. Zenus, the regional governor of the Aeolian Greek cities, died with only a young son and daughter, meaning no obvious heir. Satrap Pharnabazus II would normally have just appointed a new Persian. But the late governor's wife, Mania, approached Pharnabazus with lavish gifts for the satrap, his concubines, and his nobles. She proposed that Pharnabazus make her the governor regent while waiting for her son to come of age, rather than appointing some new man who would impose new policies and have to form a new relationship with both their subjects and Pharnabazus himself. In a seemingly unique twist, Pharnabazus agreed and appointed Mania the Persian governor of Aeolus, where she proved quite capable. She hired Greek mercenaries to subjugate cities on the Ionian border, bringing them from Lydian control into Pharnabazus's tribute network. She oversaw operations in person, and joined Pharnabazus on campaigns against some of the less fully subjugated peoples of inland Phrygia. And it's another piece of evidence that kind of reinforces my personal theory that there were some elements of a sexual revolution happening in late 5th century Persia. First we had Rodogune, the warrior daughter of Hidarnes. Then we had Statera herself, another daughter of Hidarnes, taking to the streets in an open carriage for all her people to see, unlike any Persian queen before her. And now Mania, a Persian woman governing a satrap in her own right for the very first time. And this rankled some of the men in her territory. They conspired with her son-in-law, Medeus, who personally assassinated both Mania and her 17-year-old son. Rather than raise the issue of warfare, Pharnabazus elected to allow Medeus to rule Aeolus as governor. Evidence of greater troubles can be seen in Babylonia. Once again, I want to reference events described in episode 70. Apparently, that was a big one. When Darius II was preparing for war with Megabyzus, I discussed the military service of Gadol Yama, a man of Jewish descent who was hired by one of the Marashu family to serve in the cavalry on the Marashu's behalf because said Marashu brother was required to provide one cavalryman as a partial owner in a horse estate. 
This was part of the Babylonian Hatru system that determined which property owners were responsible for which military service. In 397 BCE, we actually have evidence of the same system at work. Kusur Ea was a barber working in the city of Ur, and apparently he did quite well for himself cutting hair and performing minor surgeries because he was also the owner of one quarter of a bow estate outside the city. When the call for soldiers came up, Kusur Ea had no interest in serving in the infantry, so he hired one of his cousins, a guy called Nadintu Sin. Kusur Ea would both pay Nadintu Sin a signing fee and provide all of the equipment for infantry service. In exchange, Nadintu Sin took his cousin's place when the royal army was marshaled outside of the city. The army was probably headed to one of two places. In 397, the most likely option was Anatolia. You probably won't be surprised to hear that the death of their first Persian ally in centuries sparked renewed hostilities between the Greeks and Persians. But because it's Greek stuff, we have lots of sources, and we'll deal with that in a couple episodes. On the subject of Nadintu Sin, we do know from Xenophon that there were Assyrian soldiers in Anatolia in 397. The other possibility was Egypt. I've been making a point to reference the uprising along the Nile throughout the episodes about Cyrus the Younger, because it turns out this was a pretty big deal. The most recent contender for the title of Pharaoh to emerge from the western delta swamps was Amirteus, a descendant of several other rebels we've encountered on the podcast. Amirteus and his forces began attacking Persian fortresses and local treasuries in the western Nile Delta around 404 BCE, when news reached Egypt that Darius II was on his deathbed. For a few years, Amirtaeus struggled to make any progress. By maybe 402, he had pressed just far enough to retake the old pharaonic capital at Sais, but not much further. Cyrus's uprising probably changed things. This was just the opportunity Amirtius needed. While the Persians were distracted by their civil war, the new pharaoh swept through the delta and plunged south toward Memphis. By the time Cyrus the Younger was dead, Egypt was contested territory. The north was entirely under the pharaoh's control, while the south remained in Persian hands but was almost entirely cut off from Persia itself. As Amirtaeus solidified his control, forces inside Upper Egypt began turning to his side. Records from the Jewish garrison at Elephantine, hard at work laying the foundations for their temple, reference the dangers of traveling to Thebes because of rebel activity in the area, but they still recognized Artaxerxes through 401. By the next summer, the Jewish garrison almost drops out of the record, and the archives of a new garrison on the island were dated to the fifth year of Pharaoh Amirtaeus. In Egyptology, this is recognized as the beginning of the 28th dynasty and the end of Achaemenid rule in Egypt. After Cyrus's rebellion, the rebel Admiral Tamos fled back to Egypt and was executed on Amirtaeus's orders. Maybe this was a punishment for joining Cyrus rather than the pharaoh in the first place. Or maybe it was supposed to be an offering to Artaxerxes. Look, I killed this rebel for you, maybe we can work something out. If it was the latter... Artaxerxes had no intention of letting Egypt remain independent for long, but reconquering Egypt was going to take more time than just putting down a rebellion. So things stalled for a few years in the 390s. Amirtaeus himself didn't live long enough to see any retaliation. After 125 years of Persian rule, kicking the Persians out altogether destabilized Egypt itself. 
Amerteus was the last in a long line of Libyan pharaohs who wanted the Persians gone, but that didn't mean he was the most popular candidate for the title once Egypt was independent. In 399, there was a rebellion inside of Egypt against Pharaoh Amerteus. Nefarud was an Egyptian noble from Mendes, a city on the northeastern side of the Nile Delta. He rallied an army to his banner and marched on Amerteus, who had taken up residence in Memphis, probably in the satrap's palace. Neferud defeated Amerteus in open battle and had him executed, and so Pharaoh Neferud I became the first pharaoh of the 29th dynasty and made his hometown up in Mendes the new Egyptian capital. Neferud had the distinct opportunity to rule through several years without Persian interference. Distractions and logistics in the rest of the empire allowed the new pharaoh to embark on building projects and public works to truly restore Egypt's independent identity. And that's where we're going to leave things for now. Egyptian-Persian conflict is far from over, but we'll need to know who Neferud I is before we reach that point. Next time, we'll check back in with Xenophon and the Greeks to discuss the rest of his Anabasis. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find an about page, a family tree, and the support page where you can financially support this project with things like Patreon which gets you access to monthly bonus episodes or ad-free listening or discounts on merchandise, depending on your level of subscription. But you can also support the show for free. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to Spotify, go to wherever they do reviews these days and leave a review. Tell people how much you like it. If you want to tell specific people and link me on social media, you can do that at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until next week, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.